Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and uh, I'm gathered around the studio with friends, and I'm looking forward to a solid 90 minutes of Guide Talk today. So we're going to do the extended version, which means extra time, which means we need lots of good questions, and we know you'll be sending them over. So when you figure out what question you want to ask the power panel today, uh, let me know what it is. Text 877 Two four eight four, and I am holding my holding cross right now, which a listener named Cliff sent over, and he carved it out of buckthorn, and it is beautiful. And uh, I'm just gonna—I think I'm gonna hold the whole show. Why not? I'm so got, glad something got, good comes from buck, buckthorn because it's horrendous on my property. You got a lot of it, don't you? I do. I, it's all over the place on some property that I have. Yeah, and he in this nice little note he sent me. He said something to the effect of um, you take something that uh, buckthorn demonstrates how God can transform something that is detestable, nobody likes buckthorn, (laughs) into something beautiful. And this little cross is beautiful. It is. It's never been a better time to be Bill Arnold than right now. Free stuff. Gifts. <laughs> gifts from listeners? Are you yes, I like it. I love I'm a, it. I'm a woodworker, Bill, and that is a beautiful cross. I the agree. way he's really sanded it down, smoothed it over. It's the kind of thing you want to hold. You yeah, did a good well, job. I am holding it. Yeah, so, I know you are. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right. So you know the drill for Guide Talk. We uh, answer questions to the best of our ability, and you text them over, 877-933-2484. All right, I've got a question here to get things started. Let's see, this just came in. Um, quick question for Guy Talk. Did Jesus encourage praying in private, alone, or praying in a group setting, or both? Well, in the end, the answer is both. And we were talking uh, a little earlier, thinking about this about prayer. Think about Jesus. Jesus prayed in the wilderness uh, when he was out there. Jesus prayed a lot by himself. The bottom line is he didn't have anybody to pray with that really knew what they were doing. (laughs) After Pentecost, though, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, then you see the rest of the book of Acts and the epistles where the Christians came together in prayer, seeking the Lord's mind. And that's where the power came from. So I think Jesus meant both, and he was speaking to specific situations about prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, I got so carried away in my holding cross that I didn't even introduce my power panel today. Now, I assume the voices will be familiar, but we have a special guest here that we will introduce later in the hour, so not right away. But I've got Jeff Verdorn here in the uh, studio, as well as Pastor Tom Parrish, with a special guest to be announced later. We have to first notify wife and grandparents that he's on before we do anything, (laughs) right? So you got to do that first. All right. So He's nodding nodding at me right now. All right, go ahead, Jeff. Well, it's about... Did Jesus pray with others or by himself? He, uh, like Tom said, he did both. I mean, we have examples of both in Scripture. But there's actually several lines where it says he withdrew often by himself into the wilderness to pray. And as if Jesus, as a man, walked by perfect faith, 
I think he used that prayer time, that fellowship with his heavenly father in order to do what he did, and that was to walk by perfect faith. I also, uh, Tom also pointed out that it was the, the pattern of the church to come together then to pray, and we see that. Actually, in Acts chapter 2, it says, and the, the, the church, the apostles devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and guess what? Prayer. Prayer. And, and every church, those four things should be at the top of any church's uh, um, statement of faith, objective, you know, what they do as a church. It's interesting, when I've been overseas among people that are under persecution, guess what those Christians do the most together? Pray. They come together in prayer because they're looking for the Lord's presence, his power, his voice, and his action. And they build one another up. And even though some of them have gone through the worst you can think of, like having your daughter stolen or having your family killed, they still came together in prayer because they knew that's where the power was. And ultimately, as one gentleman told me, Jesus will have the final word. Mm. Here's a question, gentlemen. If you've been a part of any of men's ministries, do you have any tips or tricks on what has or has not worked? A group of men can be a difficult uh, group. My home church has actually a strong men's ministry. Um, they have done, over the years, a, a number of different studies. Um, I don't know that I want to endorse or you know any specific study or, or, or author or book or whatever. I would, I would just say study, like we just talked about. What did the church do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So if you're in a men's group— and you're not doing those four things, and hopefully you're in a men's group that is doing those things, where you're studying the Word, you're, you're, you're fellowshipping with other believers and building each other up, and you're praying together. I think those are wonderful. I agree. I, I've done a lot of men's groups. I've done a lot of small groups in my ministry. One thing I learned is that um, I can lecture real easy. I, I mean, I can have no trouble at all going for 45 minutes. But I learned real fast, and my wife was a good one who taught me this because she was a principal. You've got to put out the main topic, put it in front of people, and then ask the kind of questions where they have to respond. They have to begin to own it and think about it if they're going to take it out of that setting and do something with it. And so about 30 years ago, I, I began to shift the way I taught. And so I've taught through you know, the Bible. I've taught through books of the Bible and topics. But what I do now is that I usually... We look at the scripture, I lay it out, and I, then I ask questions. And tell me, what does this word mean? Like this word, you know, begotten. How would you understand that today? And we let them begin to discuss. And usually the beginning of it is uh, not in the ballpark. Sometimes it's way outside of the ballpark or what it needs to be. But patiently you keep bringing it back. And when those men leave, they leave with the word on their heart rather than the word being told to them. I think one of the things in the church today is that there are many more women doing Bible studies um, at church, you know, Tuesday morning studies at churches all over this country, or women's studies are some of the most popular and and, um, well-attended studies within the church. Oftentimes, the men's groups and the men's studies aren't as well-studied. Men tend to be a little bit busier, and one of the issues is is that men are called to be the spiritual leaders in the home. And and I, th- I know some guys that have been in my groups over the years, and they have tended to let mom take care of the spiritual aspects, right? They're the provider and the protector and all this, and we'll, we'll let the mom take care of the spiritual stuff. And guys, you are the spiritual leader. You should take that mantle 
and and run with it. So, and one of the most important things you need to do is get get more knowledgeable of the Word of God, exactly, so that you can do that. And men need to understand that they will be held accountable for doing that in their homes. It's not like they're going to escape and say, "Well, my wife took care of it." When they have to stand before Jesus, He's going to say, "What did you do?" And we are, and it's not a punishment thing; it's an opportunity and it's a privilege to be able to ground your children in the truth and display that and just be honest about who you are. I did hear that if a, if a, a child or a sibling comes to faith in Christ, there's like a 7% chance another family member will get saved. If a mother comes to faith, there's a 53% chance that other family members will come to Christ. But if a father gets saved, it's like 88% wow. other family members it will is. come I've to Christ. It is. I've seen those same statistics. Yeah. It is a huge number. You're right. It is. You it know, is. it reminds me of that story in Acts 10 or 11, uh, Peter goes to Cornelius's house, one of the first Gentiles to be saved uh, in, in the book of Acts. And it says that, and all who believe, the, uh, all who believe, the Holy Spirit came upon all those believe and, and they were saved, he and his household or something like that. And that's probably uh, relevant to that stat that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. As a pastor, I would get a lot of women coming to church without their husbands. They would come for the first time or they would come through a women's group or whatever else. And I'd ask them, you know, what about your husband? Well, he's not really a believer or he grew up in the church, but he doesn't have much to do with it. And and he just doesn't come. And I will usually say, can I call him and ask him to go to lunch? And I am not kidding you. I've taken a lot of men to lunch or breakfast and did a lot of listening, but then did the uh, what I hope is appropriate challenging. Mm-hmm. And I cannot, I wish I could tell you, all those men came to faith. They didn't. But a large percentage of them started showing up at church and started hearing the word, and some of them became leaders in the church. If you're not going to spend the time, you're not going to grow. Oh. Yeah, well said. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, lots more of your questions. You have some great questions coming in. So thank you for sending questions over 877-933-2484. Any question you might have, we will do our best to answer it. We've got uh, Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn here, and also a special guest that has not been announced yet. And that guest will come on later in the program. All right, we'll be right back. We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. I love Guy Talk, and I love the extended version of Guy Talk, which is exactly what's happening today. We're going to do an extra 30 minutes, so a full 90 minutes of Guy Talk today, which means we have plenty of time for your questions. Send them over. I can almost promise we'll get them on the air. 877-933-2484. Another comment came in, Bill and Guys, and wives need to give husbands space and time to attend men's Bible studies. Good comment. <laughs> Good comment. Yeah, it's look, it's a partnership. You both should facilitate and help each other grow. 
And I think when marriages are in trouble, you have you have one spouse not meeting the expectation of the other and the other not meeting the expectation of them. They don't do something, so you withdraw and you get into this downward kind of spiral. And, and that never ends up well. That's why Scripture says build one another up, encourage one another. So when you love your wife like Christ loves the church and the wife respects her husband and submits to him, you're building each other up, and it's a, it's a cycle that goes upwards instead of downwards. Mm. Agreed. And if we do that and honestly do that, the world will take notice because there aren't that many healthy marriages in our society. Mm. There aren't that many healthy relationships. People are desperately looking for people that genuinely love one another and the only way I know to really love my spouse or for to teach anybody to do that is submission to the Lord Jesus. And out of that, then, to treat my wife like the Mona Lisa, which is the most expensive painting in the world. That doesn't mean I spoil her in the wrong sense or say things that aren't true. But after 50 years, I still pay attention to her. I'm you know, still going to listen to her. It's, and that's exactly what the Word says in that Ephesians passage where it talks about husbands and wives. It starts with this verse— that says, submit to one another then as to the Lord. Yes. All right. I am looking through the questions here. Uh, here's a question. What do you think is the most important lesson out of the book of Philemon? Oh, Onesimus and Philemon and the slave issue and treating him now as a, a brother. Are you thinking out loud right now? I yeah. am. Yeah, that's yes. what I thought. I am. Yeah. And it, uh, it's helping me come up with some good things <laughs> yeah. to say. Yeah. It does help, doesn't it? But it, it does. But, you mm-hmm. know, what it does is that I always hear people say, you know, the Bible never really addresses the issue of slavery. Well, the Bible hates slavery, mm-hmm. and it, it always has. And I think that the story of Philemon is a very good story and in, in a true story of this servant who ran away, and then Paul sends him back and says to Philemon, hey, treat him right, treat him like a brother, and don't forget you owe me a great deal. <laughs> and and I think that's appropriate from the standpoint that when we're in Christ, we better treat our employees. We don't have slaves now in our culture, and I'm glad for that. But we better treat our employees almost like they were our children in terms of fair wages, that type of thing. And even when I go through McDonald's to get my Diet Coke, I've learned I better treat the person behind the window as an individual that Jesus loves. Because you never know what opportunity you're going to have, nor, and I take Seriously, the words that say, you never know when you're going to be entertaining angels. Mm-hmm. You know, the the passage, uh, I totally agree with that, by the way. I think that's the big theme, that there we are all equal in Christ. No matter what our position in this world is, some are, are quote-unquote greater, some are lesser. Um, what, I can't remember the guy's name. Om, Omniessence, the, the one that Paul oh, was writing Philemon about to accept. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And, you know, I think of that, it, it's Paul writes in Galatians, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's no male, no, no female, for there we are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, you are a child of the king, and you share an inheritance with every other believer who is in Christ. Uh, so I think that was Paul's main theme. I think you're right. Absolutely. All right. Let's move on. Let's see here. Uh, I think one of your guests said on another show how they thought that Jesus was not forsaken by his father when he was on the cross. I loved that explanation. Can you please address it again? Yeah, I'm I did. At, I'm that, looking at you, Jeff. I know. This was a, a that short video that I did last year, actually, that you guys uh, had a series on, and I chose this series that we often say that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Uh, it's there's this idea that oh, God forsook Jesus at his most needed moment. And um, and because somehow he couldn't look upon sin and he had to separate himself from God and so on. The, the word forsaken is really abandoned. And I, I don't think God abandoned Christ on the cross in that moment. And what Jesus is quoting is from the psalm. And David in, in the psalm says, why have you forsaken me, God? But he goes on to realize in that psalm that he hasn't forsaken him. And I don't think very many Christians really believe that God forsook or abandoned David in the same way. I don't believe that God abandoned Jesus on the cross. The psalm that he references is actually a messianic song, a psalm about Jesus, and I think that is why Jesus says that. Look, if Jesus is God, how can God abandon God? And so I've always had issues with that problem that God abandoned Jesus on the cross in that moment, and I, I, I don't think that's what happens. I think Jesus is making a reference like David. He felt abandoned in his pain and suffering on the cross, but he actually, I don't think, was abandoned. I, I'm not sure, and I'm, I don't have it right here to look at the Greek words, but abandoned, I think, is the wrong word in English because it makes it sound like God the Father just simply walked away and left things as they were. Uh, that's not there. What we do have there is that Jesus, and this is the part that most of us don't get, became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could be without sin. He took the full burden of the sin of all time from the time of Adam and Eve until the time of his second coming on himself. And I cannot imagine, guys, what a crushing weight that must have been at that moment. And when you have that much sin on you and the sin is is closing in, you, as a human being, and he was fully human, I think his contact with the Father was getting slowed down, or what we might call it, shut off the way we understand it. But it doesn't mean the Father wasn't there, and it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't trust in him. It's just he felt that full weight, and it's a horrible weight to carry. I know when I'm guilty, when I know I've sinned, when I've really done something stupid, and I've done that maybe, oh, two, three thousand times in my life. When you do something like that, you feel alone. You feel like there's nobody. Who can you talk to? And I have had so many people in my office say to me, you know, if I told you the truth, Pastor, you wouldn't want to talk to me anymore. That's what I think Jesus was going through on the cross. Yeah, so I pulled up Psalm 22, and that's what starts my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it, it goes on, and David writes, but Lord, do not be far from me. No. You are my strength. Come quickly and help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. And I don't think any commentators will say, God forsake David in his moment of need. And so I think Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22 saying, hey, this psalm that David, it's really about me and what I'm going through on the cross. And uh, and and the psalm ends up by basically saying God does not abandon David, and I don't think he abandoned Jesus. But you're right. The main thing that happened on the cross, is, as Pastor Tom pointed out, was Jesus did take upon himself the sin of the world. And that's clear in Scripture. And that spiritual transaction uh, is is the the heart of what's happening on the cross. Was he not teaching from the cross when he started quoting Psalm 22? Exactly. I think which, he was. Which ends with, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Oh, that sounds like the gospel Come to me, doesn't on. it? It's like, yeah. yeah. And didn't they often start a psalm just by the first verse? And the full intention of greeting someone with the first verse of a psalm was the entire psalm. Just not a verse. But it's a lesson for us, too. 
when you get depressed, when you have troubles, when your life feels like it's falling apart, when people have rejected you, most of us have a tendency and want to gravitate into self-pity, anger, resentment, getting even, whatever that may be. Jesus did none of that. Not only did he forgive those that didn't know what they were doing, and I've often wondered, yeah, the soldiers knew what they were doing, and so did the Pharisees and others, but Jesus was ready to forgive them. But the other thing is, Jesus went to Scripture and quoted Scripture as his guide and his help in a time of trouble. And too many of us have not memorized the Scriptures or put it together in a way that when we're in trouble, we can do that. My blessing is that being with a lot of dying people, I have watched people on their deathbed start quoting Scripture mm. as they come out of a coma or in those last few moments, they'll actually start quoting, the Lord is my shepherd, I wow. shall not want. And that's my prayer when I breathe my last breath, and that's the prayer for every Christian. Mm. You know, it, it says, that, and this psalm is a messianic prayer, and that's a really good point, uh, Bill, that you mentioned earlier about quoting the first line. Remember, this Psalm 22 goes on to say, but I'm worn and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insets, insults at me, shaking their heads. He, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. This is exactly what happens to Jesus on the cross. In yeah. fact, someone says those exact words about Christ uh, uh, on the cross. Let the Lord rescue him. Uh, so this psalm is about Jesus. And so yeah. if you don't believe that God abandoned David, I don't think you believe that God abandoned Jesus on the cross, but it's a reference to this psalm. So, uh, and, th- and by the way, that doesn't take away from what, Tom, what you brought up, that Jesus still took upon himself the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, good work. You see the word Selah, repeated over and over in Psalms, and I tried to see what it means, but it's unclear. What are your thoughts or insights into this word that must be important for how much it was used? Where's uh, Justin, the psalm expert, when you meet him? S-E-L-A-H. I think it's a word of, of pause and take that moment to just let it sink in. Make sure you understand fully what you just read and don't blow through it. I believe that's what Selah means. Yeah, it's a direction from the person who's speaking or leading yep. to the congregation or to the people around him. Yep, nice, nicely done. Okay, um, let's see. Here's another question. Jeff sounds like Erwin Lutzer today. I enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a compliment. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's brilliant. Oh. All right, uh, here's wow. a question. I is is this a, this is kind of a, a live wire? Is hell eternal? As Jeff studied this, they're picking on you, Jeff. I mean, they are. Yeah, Th- better this you is, than me. Paul. Oh, look at the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it is close to break, so I'll give you another uh, thirty seconds, and then we'll we'll go to break. Thirty seconds. Let's do the Not, thirty second answer on this. Yeah. Look, there is the traditional view is that when you're cast into the lake of fire, let's be very specific because. Lost people go to Hades first, and then at the Great White Throne Judgment, they're cast into the lake of fire. There's actually no place called, quote-unquote, hell. That's a euphemism. So we're actually talking about what happens to people in the lake of fire. The traditional view is that they're tormented consciously forever and ever. The alternative view is what's called conditional immortality, that lost people actually don't have eternal life and therefore don't live forever in the lake of fire. All right. Thank you for that, Jeff. We'll take a break. We'll come back with lots more guy talk. We're going to do an extended version today, so we're going to do another 60 minutes. So that means we're time for your questions. Send them over, 877-933-2484. 
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am delighted to be with you. And I'm so glad for the great questions that are coming in. This is the Guide Talk Hour, but we've extended it an extra 30 minutes. I have Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn here with a special guest yet to be announced, and that will come on later, time permitting. But I got a note from a listener which summarizes what I always hoped Guide Talk would be. You guys want to hear it? Mm-hmm. Please. Right. Um, amen and amen. Truly appreciate you guys sharing your conversation with us all. And I'm sure what your I'm not sure what your studio looks like, but while I'm driving down the road, I feel like a wayward hobbit who has stumbled into the inn of the prancing pony. Wow. And I'm sitting around a table with a bunch of big men with big hats and I'm hearing truth and wisdom of the things that are necessary. Thank you. That's a pretty <laughs> humbling statement. I Thank know. you. I mean, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Thank you. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. All right, for Guy Talk, if you got to choose what a Bible account you would love to see on the big screen, what would it be? Oh, it's hard to beat the image of Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea, but I would like to see someone— You mean like a Bible story on yeah, the big screen? Yeah, I think so, I yeah. would like to do, see someone do a real, serious, biblical account of the life of Paul. Hmm. Oh, that would be good. Yeah. yeah, I'd enjoy that. I've often thought the, the John 11— Lazarus, Mary and Martha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so close to home for all of us because even as believers, we live with grief in this world. Things don't always work out. You know, we find our families aren't what they should be, and yet in the midst of that, Martha says, "Yeah, I'm I'm theologically astute. I know he'll rise again at the last day." And Jesus said, "I am the resurrection life." I I haven't I've seen it played out in movies. I've never seen it played out to its fullest extent because they got a two hour movie and they got to keep things limited. I would love to see that as almost like the day you were there. I think that's a powerful, powerful moment. You know, a couple of the most powerful moments of The Chosen, we can talk about The Chosen here. It's a very popular television show uh, based on Scripture, or at least season one was. I'll explain that. In season one, they had a, a couple of scenes that were really good. The The scene with Jesus up on the top of a, a roof at night uh, with Nicodemus was very powerful. And it was powerful because it— it stuck to the biblical narrative fairly closely. The other one at the end of season one was the Jesus with the woman at the well. And it was very powerful yep. because it paralleled the biblical story very well. Now, you know, they always can throw in extra narrative. I get that because when the woman went off back to her town, she goes, I'm going to go tell everybody, you know, what's happened here. And Jesus kind of smiles and says, I was kind of counting on that. And it's a very <laughs> cute moment, right? That's not in scripture. I know. But it was a very cute moment. Season two, however, The Chosen, I, I probably you'll probably get emails on this, The Chosen kind of lost me because this, in season two, none of the episodes were really biblical stories. They were stories that were related to biblical stories, but they weren't the biblical stories. And it's like, I think you got to be very careful. If you're going to portray the Messiah, the Christ, the our Lord, you better stick really close to the stories and the things that he actually said. Agreed. And one of the problems is I'm still pastoring, so I'm still preaching and teaching on a regular basis. 
I'm now having people in Sunday school class quoting from the chosen as though it's scripture. Yeah. And I'm saying That's the risk, right? That's the risk. It is a risk. And and I try to be respectful and I don't come down hard on people or anything. I say, well, let's look at what the Bible actually says about that and we'll go to the text and look at it. And they kind of sit there like, huh, well, maybe it's in Luke and it's not here in Mark or something. That's where we need to be careful. And I appreciate the people that are doing the chosen. Mm-hmm. I, their hearts are right. They're doing a good work. The people are phenomenal doing it. Uh, I but met like Jesus, you, by the way. Did you meet him? I, I did. I shook his hand and met him. Did you really? Yeah. So, well, and suddenly I was, no, I wasn't healed. I was kidding. I was just, no, it was, <laughs> but I can't remember, now I can't remember his name. Uh, Jeremy Romy? Romy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I shook his hand uh, at a premiere, a movie premiere. And I met the Three Stooges. <laughs> what does this tell you, you yeah. know, as we sit here together? Something's not right. Uh, something's wrong. But I think that we have to be very careful whenever we portray Jesus uh, that we portray him accurately because the consequences of getting it wrong are eternal, and we don't want to make that mistake. I agree. I was doing a radio show in Chicago many years ago, and the guest that was on the program that I was on right after me was Charlton Heston. Really? (laughs) And while I was on the air, he walks up to the glass of the studio while I'm trying to talk, and he looks in. And I kind of fell apart. Did you? A little bit, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I can imagine. Moses, walked, Moses, Moses right there. Just was walked he, was up he holding the Ten Commandments? Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he was not, but uh, oh, I, had an, wow. I had a nice chat with him afterwards. Wow. It was really, really fun. He's a very tall, was a very tall man. Yeah, he was yeah. an incredible uh, actor, and uh, everything I've heard, an incredible person. Yeah, he was very nice. He was very nice. All right, here's a question. Uh, in the Old Testament, when armor bearers would fall on their swords, do you think they went to heaven? Well, let's we go to heaven by faith. So let's establish uh, some core doctrine here, right? So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ after the cross, you go to heaven. What was the faith that saved in the Old Testament? It was still faith. It was just what God had revealed to that point. So it says of Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, I had a good college friend um, who was a strong Christian guy and he committed suicide uh, later in life, uh, left a wife and two young kids. And his best man grew up in the Catholic tradition. And in the Catholic tradition, you don't get to go to heaven if you committed suicide. And we had talks into the night about what is the criteria for entrance into heaven. Now, I cannot explain where someone is at psychologically where they despair of life, especially those that have the spirit living within them. But I know it happens. And I personally believe that that Christ's work on the cross forgives all sins. And if you are a believer in Christ, you're saved and you're saved forever. Um, and that includes people that even commit suicide. So, But I think you're touching on such an important point here. And if I could, for the listener, I want to take it one step further. In terms of of the sword, falling on the sword and dying, I agree with you, Jeff, and what you're saying. But let's think that further. We have people today, Christians, that are doing the same thing, either over-drugging themselves or alcohol or winding up committing suicide or whatever else. And really what we want to ask is, what are we as the church doing wrong? Hmm. And I think a lot of it is we provide programs, we provide settings, but providing the fellowship where we really can sit down, where you know— that when you get, are depressed, Jeff, you can pick up the phone and call Bill. You can call myself. We're going to get together. I'm going to meet you anywhere at 2 a.m. in the morning. We're going to sit and talk. We're going to pray together. I'm going to be there 
you know, for as long as I need to be. That's rare in America. And because it's so rare, I think a lot of people get despair, such despair, and Satan loves that. He loves to isolate people. And once you get isolated and you get in that mindset, you start hearing things that you would never think of normally, and you do things that are regrettable. Every believer should have a group of people. That's their 2 a.m. group of people. That's right. I've had a, a guy's group for my entire adult life, and uh, uh, yeah, I can call any of them at any time, and I know they will be there for me. That's the way it should be. Yep. That's the church. You guys, if you need to call me, you can, anytime, night or day, you can get right through to my voicemail. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We, we look forward lot. to that. I'm, I'm there for you. Yeah. Thank no. you. Hi, this is Bill. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm having uh, trouble understanding uh, the King James Version of Romans 11. That seems like a big task, but we've got a little bit of time here. Uh, can you give me a Cliff Notes version, the King James Version of Romans 11? Is is it specifically what Romans 11 means or specific phrases in the King James Version of Romans great 11? follow-up question. Yeah, we've got 36 verses to work with, so there's a lot. <laughs> there's it's, a lot it's, there. It's hard to, to pin this yeah. down. Yep. I didn't know if there was an, a comment no. that you would like to make just on Romans 11. Maybe we can address that. Well, let's address kind of at a high level Romans 11. It, it begins with talking about Israel and has God rejected Israel? And he says, by no means, God has not rejected Israel. And and so what's the theme here? This Romans 11 is all about Israel. That's the topic. That's the theme. That's what Paul is writing uh, about in Israel in in Romans eleven. Whether it's the King James or the NIV or the whatever version ESV, um, and so the heart of it: Did God reject Israel? In other words, is God's promise to Abraham, which is called the Abrahamic covenant, is that still in place or is it not? God promised Abraham that he and his descendants after him would possess this land that he was giving him forever. That promise passed on to Isaac, and it passed on to Jacob. And Jacob, of course, became Israel, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. I believe, as it goes on to say in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. I think that's a reference to to the biblical truth that when Jesus returns at his second coming, he saves the remnant, it's a remnant of Israel, the nation of Israel, and they will finally look upon him who they have pierced and they will groan and they will finally recognize that Jesus was the Messiah all along. And I believe then that the remnant of Israel will be saved and they will enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ. And therefore, as God says, they will never cease to be a nation before God and they will inherit the land and possess it forever. So that's at the heart of Romans 11. I agree. It says that, and uh, I have no argument with that. The problem is we got another passage. It's in First Peter chapter two, which talks uses the same language now for the believers in Jesus as being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, you know, set apart to do His will. So there's a, a that grafting in that we've never done a good job at talking about and what that means. And we're the true Israel. It says too, right? Yes, so, it does. Yeah. And and I think the problem is. If we simply look at it as uh, a race of people, it's one thing. If we look at it as a people under a covenant that the Lord has called through Abraham, that's another matter. And in a covenant, you can become a fully adopted child 
or grafted in, as Jesus talks about in John 15. And so I think it's both. And uh, I'm not sure how that's all going to work out. It is interesting that in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed, how as a people unit, Israel ceased to exist and was scattered throughout the entire world. And it wasn't until 48 when anything came back that's even close. And uh, there's even controversy over that as to DNA-wise, what makes you an Israelite? You know, do, do you have the DNA of Israelite or not? The, the point is, right now, under the new covenant, we better all be right with Jesus. And that's Correct. what we're praying for for the Israelites as well. Yeah, and Tom brought up, the I mean, the big debate with Romans 11 is this pertaining to ethnic Israel or the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob specifically? Or, as he mentioned, does this have in view uh, what we are now called true Israel, if you will, that Abraham has now becomes our father through faith in Jesus Christ? And uh, and is, is it more geared towards the church instead of the nation of Israel? So there's kind of the debate in Romans 11. Um, I, I fall on the, the first side that it's eth- ethnic Israel that that um, God is talking about, but but the key is, as you said, whether you're Jew or whether you're Greek, uh, <laughs> you're you're not going to get into heaven unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans earlier makes it clear that all are under sin, whether you're Jew or Greek, and that you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Greek. And you know, I agree, and I think if we would honestly operate from that, unfortunately, in today in the nation of Israel. There are a couple of Christian groups who have become so extreme on this that when we send missionaries there, they do not want those missionaries trying to convert Jews because, after all, they have a different covenant. And I'm saying, that's not the Bible I'm reading. we got a problem here. They need Jesus like we do. So that's where the problem comes in, and we need to keep working at that. Yeah, so that's some evangelical Christians believe in what's called, what you just described, is dual covenant theology. And it's this belief that we do not need to evangelize the Jews because this future salvation. The problem is, is if you're a Jew living right now, you have no promise of your individual salvation outside of Christ, period. Exactly. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. More Guy Talk. We have the extended extended version today, so we're going to do an extra 30 minutes, which means we have plenty of time for your question. Text it over, please, 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff with a special guest in studio that we have yet announced. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold, and thank you for checking out the podcast. I'm always glad when you make your way over to My Faith Radio and look through the menu of everything you can listen to, programs that have already aired that you might want to hear again, or maybe you have a friend or a family member in mind that would really be blessed by hearing something you heard, and then it gives you an opportunity to talk about it and share your faith with a loved one. It's one of the great things I love about the podcasting at Faith Radio. And we have a great fundraiser coming up, So I would love for you to say yes to that. You can text the word GIVE right now to 877-933-2484 or follow the link in the show notes to give your gift today. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio.
Welcome back to the show. We are enjoying an extended version of Guy Talk today, and we're going to just spend an extra 30 minutes uh, today. So let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Let's see. I just had an interesting question come in. Um, all right. Can you talk about the the seals in Revelation, or do we need a couple hours? <laughs> I'm I'm actually doing the end times class right now. It's a semester long class where we cover all of the details of God's plan for the end of the age. The seal judgments in in the book of Revelation is m- much of the details about what happens in what I believe is a future seven year period that comes upon the world. There's seven seal judgments. There are seven trumpet judgments, and there are seven bowl judgments. Um, they're, they're, look, we don't have time to talk about all of them, but I think, and this was this is a little bit unique, and I just thought I want to throw this out there. I believe most commentators will say the seven seal judgments come first, then the seven trumpet, then the seven bowls. I actually see it a little different. I think the seals, which are opened by Jesus when the scroll is is handed, he's he's able to take the scroll from him who sits on the throne and open it, break its seals. So he does. And I think those seven seals open up this scroll. And as such, it's an overview of the seven-year period. Um, and then the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments fit underneath that. The trumpets in basically the first half of the tribulation, the bowls in the second half of the tribulation. Uh, but the scene that I love is in in Revelation 5 where it says, John says, and I saw God sitting on his throne holding the scroll, and no one was worthy to come and grab this scroll. And the angel comes to him and basically says, no, there is one yeah. who is worthy. And because he died for the sins of the world, and he was the sacrifice, and he, Jesus, is worthy to come and take the scroll, and he's the one that breaks these seals and opens the scroll. It's the revelation of the seals that we should be focusing on, just like you said, because that's the heart of the message. The seal is the seal, you know, and they use seals a lot in Rome and elsewhere, so that was no big deal. But here you have it being unfolded, and we get a glimpse of what's coming and in that glimpse, we get an understanding of the Lord's will and what's happening to uh, all those uh, who come to the judgment seat of Christ and what's going on in the universe. So I've never seen a study that just focused on the seven seals in terms of what's coming out of that. We talk about the seven seals, and I've gone to a lot of lectures that use that language, and this is the end time, and I'm fine with that. But what are they actually saying? And thanks, Jeff, because you just touched on one, and we should do that with all seven. Hmm. And, and I'll, I will point out the first four of the seals, by the way, are four horsemen. And this is commonly used uh, not only in biblical prophecy circles, but also in a lot of secular literature uh, and novels and movies and stuff. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right. And so we see that imagery. And that is actually the first four seals, a rider on a white horse, a yep. red horse, an ashen horse, and a, and a black horse. And uh, these first four judgments that come upon the earth are known as the fourth four horsemen of the apocalypse. All right, let's move on. I have issues with your guys that sound like groups are the only way to live. Now, let's not get defensive because this is a lovely little text that just came in. I was in a Bible study for five years, but without a strong leader. It's most often a meeting of just shooting the breeze. 
What's wrong with having a few good friends with solid faith that I meet with once a month where fellowship and Bible study are there? Uh, history has examples of people who went out on their own and did big things for Christ. I've led nearly 100 people to Jesus without a church group support, and church people don't generally encourage me because they aren't out there leading people to Jesus. Well, it's I understand the argument, and after being a pastor for nearly 50 years— I could probably give a lot of examples why I'd like to leave the church, too. <laughs> that, that's that's not the issue. The issue is not that the church is something to give or to not give or to be a part of or not of. It's Jesus' idea. Now, what you're seeing in the church and what your group is succeeding in doing is something that should be taken into the church so the church becomes stronger in doing that with all the believers because uh, if you go to a church that has a 1,000 people and you've got a once-a-month group, or you left that church and you got a once-a-month group and you got 10 people coming and you're leading 100 people to Christ. Wonderful, wonderful. But what about the 990 others? And that's where it needs to be brought back into the church and we can't let that go. So it's both and, and I know what he's saying. I understand it. I, I do. But I always say let's find a way to bring it back into the larger body as well. And here's the thing of it. I think that we as Christians need to really challenge one another. With all of our structures, with all the ways we do things, let's just talk honest to one another. Honest to the pastor, let him talk honest to you, and let us begin to look at this and say, what are we doing? How are we fulfilling our calling, which is to make disciples? You know, how is this being lived out? And when we see it isn't working, like this gentleman sees, and he's doing it a different way, let's find a way to make that work. What if his church now had a 100 groups like his, and then they met together as well to worship on Sunday morning? I think that'd be terrific. So I actually think in that question, the issue was not so much with groups, but with mm-hmm. what the group was doing. And it sounded like the group that got together and they started talking about sports or politics or whatever, not getting into the Word. And I tell you, every single Bible study group that I've attended, that is a, a tendency that guys will get together and they'll just go off on the topic of the day, of right? Course. So don't throw out the groups. And I did notice and also in part of the question that he says, well, I have a group of two or three that are strong believers, and and that's my group. Well, so you actually do have a group, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just a smaller group, and you guys are coming together and probably acting much more like a true fellowship group where you're sharpening one another. As iron sharpens iron, so one right. man's faith sharpens another. another. So, so focus on that group. Uh, and, and then I would challenge you, if, if you are that mature Christian— who, who has studied the word, are sharing your faith and are out there, well, then you be that leader of a new yes. group and find your Timothys to gather together that you can now disciple and pour into. Because, look, I'm, I'm not going to ever throw out the group, right? I think if you need to be fed, get into a group. Hopefully the leader is biblical and trained and, and, and knowledgeable and so on. But if you're already there, well, then you start the group and you be the disciple. After all, what is the church? The church is the ecclesia, and that Greek word means the fellowship of believers. Right. So be in fellowship. Don't give up being in fellowship. Mm-hmm. And it's really finding as you lead those groups, because I've led a lot of small groups over the years, a lot of men's groups. I even have led women's groups where they accept me as one of the ladies. It was <laughs> it was very good. We got to be careful with that these days. Yeah, though, I know. So, I'm yeah, not going okay, there, yeah. but you know. Which but brings bottom... me to my, my next question, actually. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right. So much for humor. Yeah. But the, the bottom line is leaders need to identify new leaders. Yeah. 
And so in every group I had of 10 men, there was always one, if not two, that stood out in the group that could be potential leaders. And I made up my mind that I was going to work extra hard with those people so they would go out and start groups. And uh, that's exactly what happened in some of those. They went out and started their own groups, and they developed leaders out of that, and it's multiplied. I have no idea how many are involved in that now. And Mm -hmm. that is exactly what Paul tells Timothy to do, by the way. What you just described is actually in 2 Timothy 2. He says, My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ. And these things you have heard me say in my presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Yep. So there's your model right there. Yep. All right, we're going to speed this up here. Jeremiah 31:22 says, "Come back, virgin Israel, come back to your cities. How long will you twist and turn my wayward child? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth, a woman turned into a man." And the question was someone brought this to my attention a verse that during this time of gender confusion this verse could be misunderstood. Can you add some light on this verse? Just give us the reference one more time. I'm sorry. It is uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 22. Jeremiah 31. My my verse says returns to a man. The woman returns to the man. Yeah, so this is a translation that said uh, a woman turned into a man. So that's not a version I would... Yeah, well, I'm guessing that biblically it does not mean that a woman turns into a man because I don't believe that's actually possible. Uh, yeah, and, and it says the woman will return to the man or potentially will protect. So I, I don't think it's turn into. I don't think that's a good translation. But I've never looked at this verse, but I'm guessing right now that it doesn't say that a woman will turn into a man as in what we're seeing, you know, pervert, you know, today, right, right. going on today. All yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree. I don't have the Hebrew here in front of me, but I would like to be able to look at that. But no, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where that would be affirmed. Awesome. We'll take a little break, but we have lots more guy talk ahead. We've got another 30 minutes, so get your questions over. Text them to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll take uh, your question, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. Be back in a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.